Father, when we say the word love, we, we are always conditional. It's not that we mean to be, but everything in our world has a limit. And often, Lord, we, we reserve love for people that love us, or we reserve love for people that we care about. But Father, you, you love the unlovable. You loved us, Lord, when we were your enemies, and you loved us when we were far away. The scripture tells us that by this we know love, that you sent Jesus to be our, our Savior. And even before we were born into this world, knowing everything that we would do and the path that we would choose to take, and for a lot of us, Lord, we, we kind of pushed back and rebelled and walked our own way. Lord, you still, you still sent your Son to be our Savior. So on that day when we were ready, when we turned our face toward home, there was a way for us to come back. There was an opportunity for us, Lord, to be forgiven of the things that we've done, the mistakes that we've made, and to find a place in your family and in, in, in your blessing again, God. And we just thank you so much for this. Father, we just praise you that that we've had an opportunity to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ and live in a time and place where, where it's available to us. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy this morning to gather as, as your people in this place and, and crowd together and worship and praise with you, Lord. And we know there's a lot of our brothers and sisters throughout the world that don't have that, that opportunity today, and we pray for them. I just ask, Lord, that as we open your word today, that you might open our heart to what it is that you have to say to us. God, just help us to recognize that in each of these churches, there's a little bit of us, that they dealt with the same kinds of things that we deal with, that we're good at some of the same things they were good at, and we struggle with some of the same things that they struggled with. Help us to understand what it is that you have to say to us about that, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We just ask you to bless this time together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past few weeks, we've been taking kind of this trip around the province of Asia. So, so uh, if, if you look at a, a map of the, of the churches that we're talking about here, we start off in Ephesus, and, and we're kind of working away around a circle, and I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in his conversation with John, is, is we're kind of just working our way from Ephesus to Smyrna to Laodicea, or to, uh, to uh, today Thyatira, um, and, uh, and, and to each of these churches, uh, we, we see something different. Um, last week, we talked to Pergamum, and we found Pergamum being a church that was, that was really struggling with compromise. And they, they lived in, a, in one of the, in fact, one of the most wealthy and fantastic places. I, I've never had an opportunity to travel to Turkey. A lot of people don't, but uh, my grandfather and some of them <clears throat> in their generation had a little bit more open access there. From what I understand, Pergamum is some of the most spectacular ruins anywhere in the ancient world. If you want to see some of the greatest examples of, 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 of Roman architecture, per Pergamum has it. It was the kind of capital city or the house of government for this entire region. And, and so there was a lot of pressure there on the church, and they were kind of bowing into that. And even though in many ways they did well, uh, Jesus came and he challenged them and said, we, we, we can't have a compromise in this situation. We've got to remain firm. 
This morning, we're, we're taking a, a look at yet another town about 40 miles away from Pergamum. The name of this town is, is Thyatira, all right? Kind of a crazy-sounding place. And Thyatira is an ancient, ancient city. In fact, it's probably about, at this point in time, it's about 4,000 years old. Uh, it, was, it was formed by the early Hittite nation. And uh, by the time that John is writing this, this letter to the churches scattered throughout Asia, Thyatira has a very specific purpose. Remember I said that Pergamum was this fantastically wealthy, beautifully built sort of city. And there was a lot of, a lot of raiding and kind of pushing in from the east. And so Thyatira was kind of a buffer zone uh, for Pergamum. It was funded by the wealthy people in the city of Pergamum, all right? They kind of propped up the military installations, and this was a working class kind of city. Uh, and uh, there was, a, there was a, lot of, a lot of just people that did things in Pergamum. In fact, as they dig through the ruins there, <clears throat> one of the things that they find are they in the ruins of Pergamum, are, are the, uh, the records of the trade guilds. And this is important. I'm not just giving you guys boring history today, but this really sets up how the rest of this conversation that Jesus has with this real group of people living in a real city actually worked out. The trade guilds in Pergamum were extremely well organized. In fact, some people say they were probably the best organized trade unions anywhere in the ancient world. And, and if you've never been in a trade union, or you don't know what I'm talking about this morning, let me just quickly kind of tell you. A trade union is it's kind of like electricians or plumbers in our world today um, it, it's a group of people that that kind of set the, set the standard for how things should be done and they kind of say who is and who isn't allowed to practice those particular sets of skills in a particular region right and so there's a lot of good in that because if you want to hire a plumber you want to make sure that the guy actually knows how to glue the pipes together and you don't flood your house right if you want to hire a, a guy to do brass work and in, in your in your building you want to make sure that he's a He's an artistic and accomplished person. But there was something else that went with these trade guilds, and that was that there was a lot of, of idol, idol worship. Each and every trade guild had its own patron idol, and they would worship that patron idol at every trade guild meeting. So just to, just to kind of let you guys know, here's all the trade guilds that were in, in Thyatira. These are written on ancient documents, but um, there were the leather workers trade union, the wool workers, the weavers, the bakers, the tailors, the dyers, the candle makers, the cobblers, the potters, the bronze smiths, the blacksmiths, the slave merchants, the dyers of purple cloth, and the stone cutters. Every single one of these groups of people in this very blue collar city had this trade group. And in order to do one of those particular items there, you had to be a part of this trade guild. Now, hold on to that because that becomes very important for us as we begin to kind of develop uh, what, Jesus, um, what Jesus is going to say to this church here. Um, and, and if you look at the city of Thyatira, you realize, man, that's a lot of tradespeople. <laughs> that's because Pergamum was this wonderful place that was just uh, wonderful, clean, whitewashed. They didn't want industry in Pergamum. So Thyatira pretty much does all the, the like, dirty work, and then they ship it up the road not far to Pergamum, who uses all the products that these people have built. Now, this critique that Jesus gives to the church in Thyatira will be the longest of all the critiques that he gives, and it's probably one of the most powerful, uh, and, and, and you'll, you'll see in a little bit why. Jesus, Jesus kind of pulls the gloves off with this particular church, but as he begins in Revelation, the second chapter in verse 18, he starts off, uh, as he always does, um, in, in, with an introduction. Notice with me, uh, Revelation 2 in verse 18, it says, to the angel in the church of Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. <laughs> now, 
we'll just pause there for a second. This is not the kind of introduction that you want to read if Jesus is talking about your church right here. If you look back at some of the other ones, like to the church in Ephesus, so the church of, uh, of Smyrna, uh, he, he writes, he says, kind of uses kind of metaphoric shapes for himself. Um, but in this case, Jesus is just being, the first thing he does is he claims his authority right here. He, said, he says, these are the words, or these are the words of the Son of God. This is Jesus talking. This is the authority speaking, whose eyes are like blazing fire. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize that he's not exactly happy right here. Whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, what, he, what he's kind of using there is the image is he's saying, my eyes are looking straight through you <laughs> and my feet are bronze. Bronze is kind of a Bible term for, for judgment. Jesus is just kind of giving this church a heads up. We're about to have a real discussion about what's going on in your congregation. Now, that's a little bit frightening, isn't it? How many, how many of you have a little anxiety when you go to the doctor? Anybody here kind of get a little, yeah. Uh, I don't, know what, I don't know what the anxiety is. Maybe it's just that you're trapped in this little room with, with somebody you don't know very well, and that's kind of socially awkward, right? But, but a lot of times, especially if you're not feeling well and you go to the doctor, um, there's a little bit of nervousness because what is the doctor going to say back to you, right? What is he going to say the result of those tests are? One of the most nerve-wracking things I think that doctors do is that they have your own test, and then they call you up and say, hey, we need, to, we need to talk about the results. If you've ever been there before, you kind of know how that feels. There's this sense of sort of dread that comes over you. And, and in a sense, this is Jesus kind of telegraphing that to the church here in Thyatira. He's picked up the phone, and he said, look, we have done some testing, and we need to talk about what we found. Now, I want you just to kind of think about this for a moment as we, as we set up the, the conversation around the church in Thyatira. What kind of a doctor do, do you want? Because there's really a couple different ways that a doctor could, could care for patients, wouldn't there? Imagine a doctor that every time that you went to the doctor, the doctor said, man, you are, you are a picture of health. You are looking better than ever. You, you, you're going to live forever if you keep up this pace. How many of you would enjoy going to that doctor? Come on, we would enjoy going, right? We would enjoy going to that doctor, right? Because we left that doctor and we felt really, really good about ourselves. All right, <clears throat> maybe you guys have a doctor a little bit like my doctor. Um, when you go in and he looks at you and he says, what, Jason, really you're about 20 pounds overweight. Your cholesterol's high. How much sugar are you eating anyway? Um, um, are you working out and running? You know that's important to run three times a week. Um, oh, what else do doctors say? Uh, yeah, you need to take care of this. You need to take care of that. You need to watch what you're doing here. How many of you enjoy going to that kind of a doctor? Nobody. But let me ask you this question this morning. Which doctor is actually a good doctor? What's the second one, isn't it? I, I'm not going to pay somebody that much money just to tell me that I'm, I mean, I can listen to the radio to a progressive commercial, right? and she'll tell me, Flo will tell me how awesome and smart I am. I don't need to go to the doctor for him to tell me all these kinds of things. So here, here's the point this morning. I want us just to think about this when, when, it talks, when we're talking about moral things. Sometimes when, when we're talking about the condition of our heart spiritually, and somebody says something to us, or sometimes when I'm reading through scripture, or I'm listening to a sermon, and, and it, it says something that I know is 
it's probably true, you know, because like the doctor says, Jason, you need to lose weight. I look in the mirror. He's right. I know I need to, right? I'm not worried about losing weight if I go to the doctor and I'm in fit as a fiddle and the doctor says, Jason, you need to lose weight. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. But I know he's right. He's reminding me of something that I already know. And there's, there's a tendency for us as humans sometimes to push back at that because we don't, we don't want to deal with that. But guys, that doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do us any good for Jesus to show up to the church in Thyatira and say, hey, you guys are awesome, when really there's some underlying condition that's really, really dangerous that's about to break out. And so let's notice how Jesus starts off, because as Jesus starts off, as he always does, he addresses the positive, and then he goes to the negative things. So notice with me here, in verse number 19 beginning, he says, I know your works. And here's Jesus, right? He's got these flaming eyes and these burnished bronze feet. But Jesus says, I know what's going on. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than your first. So as Jesus starts off right here, just just look at this list right here. He said, I know what you're doing. I know what you guys are involved in. I understand and can see how your fellowship is developing in this very difficult place that is Thyatira. And notice this. He said, I, I see your, your love. When he comes to the church in Ephesus, he says, Ephesus, man, you guys are doing a great job pushing out false teaching and dealing with all this stuff, but you've lost your first love. Consider the height from which you fall and repent lest you perish. So, but he comes to the church here in Thyatira and he says, I see your love. You guys are doing a wonderful job in loving me and loving one another. Jesus said that. It obviously is true. He said, I see your service. This church was involved in serving and ministry to the outside world right here. Now, now think about, about this for just a moment with me. If you were to try to define a healthy church, what kinds of attributes might you put on that list? A lot of the things that we read right here would be high up on all of our lists of what a healthy church looks like. A church that is doing things. There's works. There's activity going on. It's not dried out, dead, and boring. There's there's something going on right there, right? A church that loves people, that loves one another, that loves the community around that church. A church that is serving one another and serving people on the outside. Then notice he says that I see your, your faith. The deeds were not just motivated by a sense of wanting to do good in the world or to be recognized, but, but Jesus said, I know that the reason behind this is, is that you believe truly that I'm the Son of God. That's a remarkable thing. Now, here's one that always catches me because I'm no good at this. He said patience. They had patience. They had endurance. They had steadfastness. They were carrying forward right here as they were supposed to. And then he finishes up and he says, in fact, when I look at your service, I recognize now you are doing far more than you did when this whole conversation started. You guys are not just a, a, a doing something church. You're not just a motivated moving church, but you're moving forward and you're expanding. You might think at this point in time that this church is a super healthy and on fire church. And probably if you came in and looked from the outside, you would say it was. What if we, what if we looked at ourselves today as a congregation here or American Christians in general? We have good deeds. We have love for people. We talk about and hopefully live out our faith. We serve uh, those in the family and outside in community. We're, we're persevering and kind of pushing through. We might look at that list and we might say, well, if a church is doing those kinds of things, 
then they're, they're, they're going to grow. They're going to expand. They're going to move in a good direction. And there's a thousand books that have been written about that subject, about that group of things. And, and that's exactly what people say you need to do to be a healthy church. And you do. And maybe we're doing more than we've ever done before. But Jesus recognized that in Thyatira, there was what sometimes doctors refer to as an underlying condition. Even though as they walked through the door of that examination room, they looked like the picture of health, and they looked like everything was going their way, and everything was perfect, and they were who they needed to be and where they needed to be. The truth was is that Jesus had an, had an objective opinion that was different than the rest of the world. You, you, you might go to the doctor, and, and you might be complaining that your knee hurts, Right? And the doctor kind of looks at your knee and he says, hmm, well, it looks like a knee, right? There's no skinned up marks right there. There's no obvious protrusions. So probably if you have a long-term injury, he's going to order an MRI, right? And they're going to stick you in one of those machines and clunk, clunk, clunk. And it, it, what that does is he's going to take a look. He's going to kind of peel back the skin. And he's going to look at what is really going on in there. Oh, you have some torn ligaments. Oh, your meniscus is shot. It's gone. You need a knee replacement. You're rubbing bone on bone, whatever the case might be. You really can't see that from the outside, but when you, when you kind of take that x-ray vision, Jesus talking about that fire in his eyes look, when I look past the surface, Jesus says, I see something that is underlying. And what Jesus sees that is underlying here, it, well, as Jesus points it out, he, he doesn't pull any punches. He is very concerned about it. Let me just read this text, and then we're going to kind of talk a little bit about what it is that Jesus is, is dealing. And Jesus refers here to an Old Testament story, as he did last week in the case of Balaam, um, and another Old Testament story. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. And this is some strong language. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, but by her teaching, she must lead my servants into sexual immorality, in the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I had given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, and so I have cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her and her children dead, and the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds." I just want to remind us right here that that's Jesus that's talking. Sometimes we have this idea that Jesus is just this kind of cuddly sort of figure. And when Jesus deals with us personally, he is personable. But Jesus, when posturing himself to the church here in Thyatira, does not try to be soft and cuddly. <laughs> he says, I am a person that is going to tell you exactly what is going on. And you would agree with me that the language there is very strong. But it's not ours, it's his. And what he sees going on in this church has him extremely concerned. Ephesus was strong in doctrine, but it lacked love. Thyatira seems to be strong in love, but it's weak in doctrine. There's something going on underneath the surface, and it's of great concern to Jesus. They apparently were not willing to deal with some doctrinal heresies that were breaking out in and amongst their church family right there. And it seemed common um, that, that, uh, that you find some of these pluralities in churches. It's not, it's not uncommon that you might have a church that's really, really strong on the truth and really strong on doctrine, but they don't love people. Or you find on another extreme, the church that just loves everybody, but they're really not, not talking about the life-changing aspects of Christianity. Jesus said, I want both of those things to be infused into a congregation. I want my people to 
to have strong doctrine. I want them to realize that I've come into this world to change people, to give them the light, to transform brokenness into something that's useful. I, I don't want people just to kind of remain in the sinful brokenness that they came to me in. I want them to be transformed out of that sinful lifestyle. But also, we can't just be so strong on doctrine that we don't love and care for people at the same time. And these two churches are kind of struggling with how do we balance that? Ephesus, strong on doctrine, but they're losing their love for Jesus. They're losing the motivation behind that. Here we have, here we have the church in Thyatira that seems to be full of love and faith and is a great place, probably a great community of people to be a part of, but their doctrinal side is slipping. And Jesus said, we have a serious problem right here. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, and verse number five, one of the first comments that he makes to Timothy is he reminds Timothy kind of of the, of the, the overarching purpose of ministry. And, and he says, he says, the aim of our charge, our purpose in doing ministry, Timothy, is love. So we're, we're to go into the world and we're, we're to love the world, but then, he, then he, he qualifies that, that issues from or that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul says our charge, our responsibility, our duty is to go into the world and love the world as Jesus did. But we don't just love the world to death. We don't just ignore the brokenness in the world. No, it comes from three motivators. Number one, a pure heart. That's our heart being pure. So we're not loving people so that we can get something back from them. A lot of people do that. We're familiar with that, right? And he said that's not what we're about. We're not just loving people so we get something back. Um, and a good conscience. We want to make sure, certain that when we're talking to other people about their lives, that we've dealt with our own sins and our own problems. Jesus said that if you have a plank in your eye and, and you want to try to help your brother get a speck out of his eye, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you can see clearly to help your brother. And that's super important. And a sincere faith, that we are sincerely wanting to follow what Jesus Christ has laid out for us to do. Now, none of us are perfect at this, but this is the target that we're aiming for, that we want to love the world, but we want to do so from a pure heart, pure motives, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Uh, imagine, imagine with me table salt. We're all familiar with that, right? I don't know if it's been a long time for some of us since high school chemistry, but probably most of us know that table salt is made out of two, basically two chemicals, right? Sodium and chloride, right? And, and sodium and chloride uh, mixed together in table salt is absolutely an amazing thing to have um, because if you've ever had to eat food without salt, how many of you have had to do that incidentally? Ever been on a low salt diet? I know Bruce has, yeah. <laughs> okay, Mr. Dell. That, that's, that's punishment right there. You want to punish the kids? Don't ground them for the weekend. Just don't put salt in their food, all right? That will do it. They will repent immediately um, because salt just gives you so much flavor in life, right? And, and, and you, can have, you can have a great meal and it, it doesn't have salt. And you're like, man, it needs something. You put a little salt, all of a sudden, bam, it just comes to life. Um, and, and it's something our bodies need. And it's great for preserving food. There's a million uses for salt. But if you just have sodium by itself, I don't know if you guys remember this, from chemistry class, but sodium by itself is very, very, uh, very volatile, right? It can explode for nothing. And if you have chlorine by itself, chlorine exists in a gaseous form, and uh, if you run into chlorine in its gas form, you, after you realize you run into it, you have about two seconds to realize that you're about to die. Um, it will literally kill you. Both of those things are, are, are dangerous and poisonous compounds um, that if you expose sodium to water, it's going <laughs> to probably blow up, and if you, uh, if you inhale chlorine, it's going to kill you. But when they're put together in the correct proportion, it becomes 
becomes something that's absolutely essential for us to live. And love and doctrine are, are those kinds of things as well. We've got to have that balanced out. And all of us here today probably struggle figuring out how to do that. Some of us are a lot stronger on doctrine. Some of us are a lot stronger on love. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. We have to have both of those put together. Truthfully, if we don't really hold to strong doctrine, do we really love people? That's, a, that's an important question to ask. If you go to the doctor and you're full of cancer, but the doctor says to you, you've never looked better, you're gonna live to be 100 years old, go and do what you were doing, enjoy your life, and you walk out of that doctor's office and a doctor knows that you are not gonna last another four months because you're full of cancer, does that doctor really care about you? And I would say he doesn't. And so if there's somebody in your life that, that is talking to you about spiritual things or you're reading through scripture or you're listening to somebody preach on the radio and that person kind of hits a chord in your heart and if you're like me and you want to push off, shut off that radio, say why that person or that Bible verse is not relevant for your life, recognize that that's been written, that's been spoken. You're hearing that because of love. It's not easy to say hard things to people. No, most people don't enjoy telling people that they're wrong. And I don't think Jesus enjoys the conversation he's having with Thyatira or any of the strong language that he's using here, but he needs to get his point across. It's absolutely essential. If I truly love somebody, I'm not gonna withhold truth from them, which would lead to their destruction. And so maybe that asks us a question then. What does Jesus mean when he talks about Jezebel. Who is Jezebel? Now, some of you know that Old Testament Bible story, so you're like, I know who Jezebel is. Um, nobody names their kids Jezebel, at least that I know of. I don't know of a whole lot of Jezebels. Maybe, maybe some of you guys do. Um, but, uh, but Jesus said something here. He said that the church in, in Thyatira tolerated Jezebel. And, and what is Jezebel and who is Jezebel? Well, Jezebel was the wife of one of the most wicked kings of the Old Testament. His name was Ahab, and he really didn't start off like that, but he fell in love with and married Jezebel. And Jezebel brought along with her just all kinds of darkness and destruction. It led right into the palace, and eventually she began to kind of spread that throughout the land of Israel. We, we know that before Jezebel came, there were a lot of godly people living in Israel. There were a lot of priests that were living in Israel that were serving the one true God and, and attempting to lead the people into relationship with God. One of the first things that Jezebel did is she had, it, had all those priests hunted down and killed. Anybody who wanted to talk about uh, God, they were, they were eliminated. And, and, and the, the brokenness of, of, of Ahab and Jezebel's regime is just, it's chronicled in, in the Old Testament, 1 Kings, uh, the 21st chapter. Um, you can kind of, well, that whole section there in 1 Kings 18 through 20 uh, really tells you a lot about what Ahab and Jezebel did. Um, it, it, it was, it's pretty awful. Um, the end of that story, though, is, is that Jezebel was a great tempter to, the, to God's people. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to kind of pull out right here when he references this Old Testament story. Different than Balaam, we, we talked about Balaam's story last week. Jesus is bringing Jezebel's stories out, and he's saying there's somebody among you that is acting like a tempter, Somebody in your community of people that is influencing the, the, the members of your community to become involved in something that is detrimental to them. But you guys are tolerating it. You're, you're allowing that to happen 
for whatever reason. Now, you might ask, why would somebody tolerate this kind of person, this kind of influence? Why, why did Ahab allow Jezebel to do what she did in, in his nation? That's a, that's a great question um, because a lot of terrible stuff happened uh, to the land of Israel, both as judgment from God but also just from what she did. Why would he allow that to happen? And that's, that's, that's a powerful question and one maybe we should ask ourselves this morning. I think there's three reasons, maybe three big motivators why sometimes we, we tolerate things that we should not tolerate within the church family. One of them is that we, we have a desire to fit in with culture. We, we kind of don't want to be that, that sore thumb or that odd duck out that, that has an opinion that, that doesn't really agree with what other people around us say that we should believe, right? And it seems like the church in Thyatira uh, maybe was suffering from that a little bit. They, they were tolerating Jezebel. They, they had a spirit of tolerance right here, but it, but, but it wasn't for the health and the benefit of the church. And Jesus recognized that this underlying condition was going to become a huge problem for them very, very soon. We, we live in a world today that in a lot of ways, philosophically, we say we're in a postmodern kind of world, right? Um, and, and modernism was the thing that kind of led between the middle 1800s until the mid-1900s um, in our country. And the idea that, that there was a formula, there was a way to do everything, and you kind of reduced it to that formula. And modernism doesn't work for everything. Modernism doesn't necessarily teach students the way that every kid needs to, to learn. And there's a lot of things that modernism doesn't answer. But in the postmodern world, we, we've kind of decided, we've kind of gone to the opposite extreme of this and we decided that there are no there are no rules there are no rights there are no wrongs there is no real authority and and, and that's the place that we find ourselves today and for a lot of us it's really confusing we're kind of wondering what's going on in our world today and um, i just i think it's important to recognize that even though even though our culture may not agree with some things that the word of god says we're pretty new at this. We're going to talk about this in just a moment, but we've just decided that this is a path to take about 70 years ago. The Bible has been around in parts for four and 5,000 years. The Bible narrative follows the, the ebbs and flows of human history through generation after generation. This is not the first time that people decided they didn't want rules and laws and, 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 and restraints on their personal behavior. This isn't a new thing, mankind. Mankind has done this over and over and over again. And one particular time that we find mankind doing this in the story of Israel is during this period of Ahab and Jezebel where the people of Israel largely just decided we we're tired of that old system, we want something new. We, Jezebel represented something brand new in that she was a very, very seasoned worshiper of Baal, which was a god that everyone else in surrounding nations worshiped and served. And there were a lot of good things that seemed to be happening to the surrounding nations. And so the children of Israel kind of thought, you know what, it'd be great for us to have what they have. Let's bring Baal worship into the nation of Israel. And here's Jezebel, and she can do that for us. So there's a, there's a strong desire to fit into the culture that's around us. But I think the second thing that had happened here to the church in Thyatira, and happens to us today as well, is this that they failed to define sin. Whatever Jezebel was doing, and Jesus just assumes that they know exactly who he's talking about and what's happening right here, right? And, 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 and they know how they need to deal with it. And we'll take a look at that as we close. But, but they, had, they had not put a border around this woman. They had not put a border around the hearts of the people in the church. They had not defined 
sin, and they weren't calling sin for what it was. Jesus does, and that's what makes that passage kind of, kind of powerful, isn't it? He, he just comes right out. They weren't talking about lawlessness and rebellion and treason because those things are kind of, kind of in your face. They weren't talking about spiritual adultery or breaking God's laws and commandments, but that's exactly what they were doing. It, it, it was just easier for them to talk about other things. You know, sometimes in the church today, we do the same. Rather than talking about rebellion, sometimes we talk about struggles. Now, I realize that sin is a struggle. Don't take me wrong this morning. But sin sometimes is a rebellion for me. And I think it is for all of us as well. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to do it. I know how I'm supposed to respond, but I really don't feel like responding in that way, right? And you think about this just with me quickly for a moment this morning. When I know what I'm supposed to do, but I choose not to do it, that's rebellion, isn't it? I'm training a little puppy right now at the house. He's about seven months old, and he's a smart little fella. He knows exactly what it is that I want him to do. In the morning when I leave for work, I want him to follow me. I give him a cup of food. I put it in his kennel, and he goes and he eats his food in the kennel. He knows that's what I want him to do. But yesterday morning, he decided he did not want to go in the kennel because he knew when he went in the kennel, I shut the door in the kennel, and he stays in the kennel all the rest of the day, and he didn't want to stay in the kennel, so he sits outside the door of the kennel and just looks at me. He goes around the back side of the kennel, and he looks at the food. He wants the food, but he doesn't want to go in, right? He comes back at the front door of the kennel, and he looks at me. And we do this for like 10 minutes. I, I'm going to be late to come meet McKay. I eventually just locked the door of the cage and told Michelle, hey, Michelle, um, um, maybe try to go get him in a little bit later. She goes out about an hour later. She's like, it's no problem. He just walked right in. Well, of course, because by that point in time, he'd figured out that he wasn't going to get the food unless he was obedient, right? And he was going to have to go through the door. He was no longer feeling rebellious, Honestly, guys, that's what we do a lot of times when it comes to sin. Sometimes we, 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 talk, about, we talk about a disease when it's really a, a choice. I know, I know that sin becomes comfortable. I know that sin and sinful choices become second nature. But a disease is something that kind of comes on us from the inside that we don't necessarily have control over. And a lot of things that I would like to call a disease aren't really a disease. They're a product of my own choices. I love sugar. Most of us do here this morning, don't we? Right? You, 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 if you haven't struggled with, with overcoming something for a while, here's a Jason Quarter challenge for you. Just try to go all this week without eating sugar. Try that for a while, and you'll see just how strong our brain is, right? Because I want that thing that I like. And, and guys, sometimes, I'm not saying sin is, is, uh, sugar's a sin. Don't mistake me this morning. What I'm saying is, is that sometimes we, we're not diseased as much as we are not willing to fight that good fight. We take it too easy on ourselves. I guess that's what I'm trying to say this morning. And Jesus is saying that to the church in Thyatira. Don't make excuses for what you're doing. You're tolerating what you should not be tolerating, and you need to do something about that. The third thing, and we're wrapping up here this morning, is this, that the church in Thyatira had forgotten something, and they'd forgotten the value of truth. Truth is, if you don't have truth, then you really don't know what you have in life. If you can't go, to use our, our opening uh, illustration, if you can't go to the doctor and expect that the doctor is gonna tell you the truth, then probably most of us are not gonna go back to that doctor. 
I want to go in and I want the doctor to tell me exactly what's going on. Jason, you need to exercise more. You need to lose weight. Your cholesterol is too high if that's the case or whatever the, might, the case might be. Jason, you have cancer. Or Jason, you need to get your knee fixed because you have a problem. I don't want to go to the doctor and tell me what I want to hear. I want to go to the doctor so that he tells me the truth about myself so that I can maybe change what I'm doing and have a better life after this. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do in our life. You know, one of the names of Jesus is he is the great physician. Jesus compared himself that way. He said, I want to be your spiritual physician. I want to come into your life. I want to open up your life, and I want to tell you this is what needs to change, Jason, because this is rotten. You need to get rid of this because this is going to poison the rest of your spiritual life if you don't deal with it. And sometimes I don't like that, but it's absolutely essential. I was reading the other day a guy that does a lot of, a lot of polling for, uh, for religious organizations. You, many of you know his, his name of his company. His name is George Barna, Barna Research Group. And uh, he's come out with some polling over the last couple years, which is very interesting, especially in the last year of 2020. But, uh, but this is something that just stuck out to me, and I was creating this sermon. He said that in, in, in churches today, Christian people that are gathered together with us on a Sunday morning in America today, 44% of born-again adults are certain that absolute moral truth exists. 44%. So just to kind of get the opposite side of that, that well over 60% of people, or around 60% of the people um, that are going to church that say Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life are not certain if there's absolute truth in the Word. They're not certain if you can say this is really wrong. And guys, that's a real problem. Jesus is recognizing this in Thyatira. He said, you guys, are, you guys are tolerating something over here, but it's gonna have a real effect. And I think as the American church, we've kind of tolerated things and it has a real effect on how we look at truth and lies. 9% of born-again teenagers believe in absolute truth, and that's over the whole United States, but think about that for just a second. Less than 10% of kids say, I'm a follower of Jesus, will also answer that they believe there's an absolute truth. We've forgotten. The church in Thyatira has forgotten how important truth is. We don't like truth because sometimes it tells us that we're wrong. But guys, honestly, we are wrong sometimes. I'm wrong, you're wrong. And if we're not right, we need to do something about that. Judges 17th chapter and verse number six. And again, in Judges 21, 25, really throughout the whole of the book of Judges, there's this little phrase that pops up over and over again. It says, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone just did whatever they thought was right and whatever they thought was good. And if you notice, if you've ever read through that section of scripture, you know it was a time of absolute anarchy. It was a time where things were, were not good in the nation of Israel. And, and we must, as a church, never forget to hold on to those things that have to be held on to. The Bible is not just another book. There are reasons why we know that the Bible is a word of God. And we're not gonna go into that this morning because we're out of time. But if you've ever struggled through that, and I, I throw this door open often, but if you're a person right now that like, Jason, how can I trust the Bible is a word of God? Let's sit down and let's talk about that. There's reasons why we can believe what we believe. I just wanna share a passage of scripture with you and we're gonna close. There's many of these that we could share, but it's again 1 Timothy, Paul writing to this young man who was beginning the ministry in chapter six in verse number 20 and 21. And he says, Timothy, guard 
what has been entrusted to your care. And if I may this morning, I just want to kind of, kind of throw this out to you guys as well. Church, guard what has been entrusted to our care. The, 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 the idea of Christianity the idea of what Jesus did for us. This is not just something that if we don't guard it, it's just gonna always be here. Some of us grew up and we just think, well, it's always gonna, there's always gonna be church and there's always gonna be right and there's always gonna be wrong. No, there isn't, church. If we don't guard it, it's gonna be stolen from us. That's the seed that fell on the path. You remember that in Jesus' metaphor of the, of the good sower and the seeds that fell on the path that says that the path was hard and the birds came and they just snatched it away and it wasn't there anymore. The potential for growth had been robbed. And the same thing is true. Paul says, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas which are falsely called knowledge. He said, Timothy, you've got to work out what is and what isn't. You gotta work out what is true and what's just someone's opinion because both exist in the world, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Let me close this way. Jesus talked about Jezebel. And in First Kings, the 21st chapter, in verse number 20. The prophet of God, who was a constant thorn in the flesh of old Ahab, shows up. I'm just going to read it. And Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. <laughs> he was Ahab's enemy because when Elijah showed up, he told him, you're doing wrong. You're leading God's people in wrong. You are going to cause terrible things to happen in this land. And Ahab was hunting him to kill him. And eventually one day, Elijah finds Ahab and he says, you found me, my enemy, you truth teller. And, and Elijah answers back. He said, I found you because you sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I, I will wipe out your descendants. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of, Jero of, of, uh, of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that caused Basha, uh, the son of, of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and you have caused Israel to sin. And Ahab was guilty of all those things. And then he says, and concerning Jezebel, the Lord says the dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And the dogs will also eat those that are belonging to Ahab who die in the city. And the birds will feed on those in the country. You talk about a, a pretty bad message. Elijah had one for this guy. Just took courage from Elijah to share this to the king. And the king is listening to this here. And then the Bible writer chooses to, in 25, put a little parentheses. And he says, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord and urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner, going after idols like the Amorites and the Lord that the Lord had driven out of land before Israel. So the Bible writer thinks, man, you need to know who we're talking about. This guy was the worst of the worst. This guy was drugged down farther than anyone else had ever been drugged down. But I want you to notice what happens when the truth intersects the real life of Ahab right here. Because Ahab starts off this conversation and he says to Elijah, you are my enemy because you are telling me the truth. And Elijah said, I will tell you what's gonna happen to you. I will tell you the truth. He says, when Ahab heard these words, he ordered his soldiers to cut Elijah to pieces. No, that might be what we would think happened, but this is not what happened. This is an amazing story. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and he fasted. 
He lay in sackcloth and he went around meekly. Now this is just the guy that just a, a paragraph before the Bible writers telling us this is the worst guy to ever be king in Israel. And now, because the truth intersected his life, he's repentant. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite. God said, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. I'll bring it on his house in the days of his son. God knew that his son was going to follow the footprints that his mother Jezebel had laid out. Guys, here's the thing about God. Even though the church in Thyatira was blowing it, even though there was this underlying condition, God is saying to the church in Thyatira, and God is saying to us today, that if we begin to do the things that we're supposed to do, if we're not tolerating sin in our midst, that healing will happen. It's a beautiful thing about Ahab's story. You might think, Ahab, you're in fourth stage, buddy. You're, there's no hope for you. You are too far gone, but it's not too far gone for God. Ahab was not too far gone when the truth was boldly delivered by Elijah. And I don't believe that our culture is too far gone, but it needs people like you and I to quietly, with firmness of conviction, speak the truth into the darkness. That's going to be scary. I know that. The reason why uh, we, we think that Jezebel, what she was doing is she was a, a person of influence among the church and she was saying, join up with those trade guilds. It's okay because that's, we need those jobs. We need to have a place of position in the community. And it seems strong evidence that that's what was happening right there. And then Christians were going in those trade guilds and they were doing things that were very, very sinful in those midst. What the church needed to do was come out and say, no, this is wrong. We are not going to stand for this in this culture. We don't know exactly what she was doing, but we know exactly what Jesus said needed to happen. And Jesus said, repentance is possible. I don't know if the church in Thyatira changed. That's the thing we don't know. But we can change. You might think Ahab would never change. But Ahab changed. There's hope. And we praise God for that this morning. Let's stand together as a church and let's sing.